Welcome to Frankly Speaking. This is a new podcast on responsible business by Frank Bold, the European public interest law firm. I'm Richard Howitt, and after years of debating responsible business issues inside the European Parliament, I host our discussion of the latest political, legal and business developments in the field of corporate sustainability, business and human rights. We speak frankly and personally about what moves policymakers, business and activists to make responsible business the norm. Today, our guest on Frankly Speaking is Caroline Rees, President and co-founder of SHIFT, one of, if not the most authoritative organisation in the world on business and human rights. Previously, Caroline was lead advisor to John Bruggy in drawing up the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And now she and her colleagues at SHIFT spend their lives on helping implement them. Caroline, welcome to Frankly Speaking. Hi, Richard. It's wonderful to be with you today. Uh, wonderful to have you. Now, the first question I ask many of our guests, how did you get into all of this? When did business and human rights first enter into your life and why? Yeah, well, um, I was in my first uh, career a uh, British diplomat and um, spent a good number of those years in multilateral affairs, latterly at the United Nations for the United Kingdom government, where I led our team on human rights negotiations, most of which were all about governments and what governments are doing or developing new um, standards on, on various things. And then in 2004, um, for the first time ever, business and human rights came up on the agenda of what was then the Commission for Human Rights. The following year became the Human Rights Council. Um, and it was mayhem because nobody had any orientation to the issue. Nobody knew, you know, how to handle it. There was no standard country that led it in the negotiations. Um, and it got very messy very fast. Um, so I ended up, uh, for various reasons, sort of stepping into that and trying to work out a path forward. Um, and ultimately that led to creating a group of five states, uh, along with my colleagues from um, Argentina and Russia and India and Nigeria. Um, so we covered the five regional groups to say, well, let's develop a resolution. Let's make a decision on how we want to take this forward. And so I ran those negotiations and that asked the Secretary General, Kofi Annan at the time, to please appoint somebody as your special representative with a mandate to sort out this problem and come up with the answers for this problem. Um, and that was uh, adopted in the commission um, and Kofi Annan appointed a man called Professor John yeah. Maggie to do the job. And John had been his strategic advisor in his first term as Secretary General. And so through that, I got to know John because he came to Geneva and said, what is this strangely crafted mandate that I've been given? And what? how does it make sense in the current political context? And uh, so I got to know John. And as I was nearing the end of my time in Geneva, he said, well, as punishment for your sins, for such poor negotiating skills in crafting my mandate, you better come and work with me on it, which I duly did for the next five and a half years. And uh, complete openness and transparency. I've known you since then. Uh, we're friends as well as good colleagues. But also we both have huge affection uh, for John Ruggie himself personally. Yes. And for our listeners who perhaps didn't know John, um, as you introduced him there, just say a few words about what a remarkable person he was in all of this. He really was, um, and deeply missed. Um, he was a man of um, brilliant ideas combined with tremendous humility and interest in listening 
to others and learning and expanding his own ideas and how he connected those back to the world. Um, he His academic study is often not understood in the business and human rights world, right? He was a preeminent political scientist, one of the greatest of his generation, uh, really looking at the ways that global governance happens, international norms and rules are developed, um, and his theories today are absolutely born out in the world that we uh, are living in. Um, and that those are the long roots, actually, of the work that he did on business and human rights. He didn't sort of pitch up as a smart guy and say, oh, that's very interesting. What should we do about this? He actually had decades of thought uh, about how you evolve systems and develop international regimes and improve practices that informed this. But I, I just come back to that point about um, his humanity his humility and his humor, which really guided him in all that he did and I think made him such a special person for so many of us to to work with. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think I just finally say he was he was informed by his own life experience. He um, came from a very poor family that moved over from Austria to Canada. His mom cleaned houses. Um, he, his family was dependent on local trade union networks um, for uh, survival in some quite basic ways. Um, and he lived out those realities that he'd seen and experienced as to you know, what it means for people to be vulnerable in society, in the workplace and so forth. Indeed. And when you say it was mayhem when he got involved, it really was. There was so, it was so polarised between companies on the one side and trade unions and NGOs on the other and getting further apart, if anything. And he had the political and diplomatic skills to be able to bring people together and to do so through the content of what the UN guiding principles were about. Yeah, Richard, it, it was such an important period for building bridges and, you know, the role that you played in the European Parliament context, right? Such a critical geographical arena around these issues, a critical set of voices, and one real example of, of the kinds of voices that needed to be brought together to build common ways of thinking, not always consensus, certainly not always agreement, but, but common ways of thinking about the problem set and to build a conversation between people to see how we could craft ways forward. So um, that was really the foundation of the endeavour, uh, building of bridges, but your own role in that was was absolutely seminal. Thank you. Uh, but as you said, many people, many people, mm -hmm. and we all were influenced by John. Now, I've started by asking you some very personal questions there. I'm going to go right to the other end of the spectrum, which is what is the role of business in society? Because there are so many of the people listening to Frankly Speaking, they're practitioners, they're inside businesses, or they're stakeholders around businesses. And we all get very sucked into the detail. But you are one of the people in the world to say, does business have a role in society? What is it? How would you answer that? Well, I, I don't want to be reductionist, but surely it has to be at root that it's to make and deliver things that serve the advancement and the betterment of people and societies. Um, if it's not that, I don't know what it is. That includes, of course, the planet that we live on, right, <laughs> which is foundational to the success of people and, and societies. But um, if this isn't about advancing humankind and the human experience, I'm not sure what it is. So for me, that's the touchstone to come back to. And so, and I know you've answered this a million times, but it's important to put it, the, the freedmen, it's just businesses, business to do business, make profits, 
or people who say businesses are not human beings you can't really be a corporate citizen citizens are people and human beings and corporations are different entities when you hear things like that said how do you respond look it's been an era of a few decades <laughs> um where a theory a theory grew up uh that it was just all about the profit motive uh, you know um, let's not forget that the theory was that that was the way to better society because all the benefits would trickle down right if, if you just advance this motive then all those societal goods would happen and of course freedom did say that it was within the rules of society the problem is that the rules of society, the rules within which companies had to operate were probably inadequate at the time. And I will actually loosened and reduced uh, even as this profit motive was advanced and the opportunities for the profit motive were expanded through international trade uh, regimes and movement of goods and people's money. So, um, you know, e even, even that theory was framed as betterment of society. It's just that we, we now have the evidence, right? The jury's in, it doesn't trickle down. Um, yes, let's not forget, you know, that there has been great development in the world and many people, many hundreds of millions of people have emerged out of poverty. Um, but the ways in which we've constructed this capitalism have not led to a trickle down and they have, have led to an expansion in, in, or a, a growth in, in inequalities. So it's not the answer and it wasn't the greatest way to better society. So, you know, it, it's out with, that particular theory and in with different ways of thinking about this. When I was in politics, if you talked about capitalism, you were deemed to be radical and dangerous. So don't mention the capitalism word. And one of the things that makes me very optimistic is that now with business people, you hear people saying what you just said, which is how can we reform capitalism? How can we achieve stakeholder capitalism? Uh, uh, how can capitalism serve the, the broader needs? And it's just a completely normal discussion um, amongst people in business. And I think it shows how we've all moved on. I couldn't agree with you more. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to, to go from that to reporting. You and I have spent a lot of our years on reporting. And sometimes if you're into reporting, they treat you as an anorak or a nerd or, you know, over uh, interested in bureaucratic things and so on. But I think what's underlined why you, I, and many people do this is because we do believe that reporting it has huge leverage in terms of change. But you get people who say, no, we're, we're tired of that. No, it's not about what we disclose. It's about what we do. And we should focus our attention elsewhere. So thinking back about it and thinking as you do now, is, is reporting really the driver? that we hoped it was and perhaps hope it was for sustainability and human rights in business. Uh, what would you say about that now? Oh, I think it is a critical driver. I don't, I, th there is, you know, no one thing I think that rises above other things, right? But um, it's absolutely a, a critical driver. And, and it isn't this tension between reporting and doing. Um, well, let me caveat that. Maybe it is if you treat reporting as a minimalist compliance exercise that you outsource to some external counsel and say, just write us some paragraphs. Okay, then then maybe then maybe fair enough. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an exercise that um, creates dynamics that change things. And how, how does it do that? I mean, it does that, number one, because it forces conversation, right? If, if you have to gather information in order to put it out in the public domain, you have to go and find it. 
half the time with these things, companies simply don't know because people are busy and this department hasn't talked to that department, hasn't actually worked out what's happening over here. The amount of times we see that companies say, this actually enabled us to sit down together and work some things out and understand why some things were happening and understand what the barriers were. I mean, that's point number one. External reporting forces internal conversation, um, which can which can get you at much better approaches for how to deal with the issues. Then there's the accountability side, right? I mean, uh, it, it, it's shining the light. Um, it, it's, it's being held to account. If you're having egregious effects indirectly or directly on people's basic dignity and equality, we need a light to be shone on that. Uh, and we want and we need things like due diligence legislation as well and other developments. But how are we going to know? We're going to know by information. Now, that can come from lots of places. But surely we need information from companies themselves, their their story, their data sets uh, about what what is in this. So um, I think it, it, it absolutely can change the dynamics within companies um, about what is understood, what is shared, what is the common vision. Um, and it, that is further perpetuated by that accountability lens from outside. And that accountability point is so important and people shouldn't fear it. It's part of a healthy economy, a healthy society for us all to be responsible to somebody else. Uh, and perhaps it's no more complicated than that. Now, in the reporting world, of course, and on the Frankly Speaking podcast, we often talk about the European Sustainability Reporting Standards. We talk about the International Sustainability Standards Board, ISSB standards. And the ISSB, the global standards setter, is looking to see whether it wants to develop standards specifically about human rights, but it's treated its proposition as separate from human capital. It says that those could be looked at separately. And you wrote an article earlier this year where you wrote, I quote, the ISSB's current plans to include social factors will miss the mark and perpetuate confusion in the marketplace, unquote. So those are pretty strong words but I think for many in business they do get confused between what's a social issue and what's a human rights issue and you believe passionately that those two go together can you can you tell us why yes absolutely I do think there's great confusion around this and I think you know part of that is because um quite reasonably most people don't dwell in the world of human rights but I think if we look at it human rights and, and we did this work early on in John's mandate right he looked at the ways in which business can affect human rights it's across the full range and human rights span everything from health and education to freedom of expression freedom of movement freedom of assembly um and so on and so forth you know it's basically we, we often use the term well-being today right every aspect of human well-being uh is covered by human rights concepts but what's particular about human rights is that they sort of almost give us a, a threshold a little bit of a pivot point right we all you know would love to have access to all kinds of things at maximum levels but there's a human rights threshold that says when people have less of this than this amount less freedom of expression less um physical liberty and and and, and access to education and so forth then their basic dignity and equality is eroded is undermined right? It gives us that focal point that says, okay, everything above this is human gain and human development in a, that more positive sense. Everything below this is a real and fundamental problem. So look, these human rights, they span every aspect we can think of that relates to human well-being, but they give us a way of focusing where things are most problematic, when, when things are pushing people, where business activities, business uh, ways of doing business are 
pushing or keeping people in some aspect below that human rights threshold. Uh, so it's an expansive concept, but it's also a focusing device to say we need to focus laser sharp on where this is the 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 harm that's that's happening. Um, so in that regard, yes, I think it's a really broad uh, and uh, but valuable tool. The other thing I'll say within this business and human rights concept context is that where you see activities that are pushing or keeping people below that human rights threshold, that's also where we see the greatest risk to business emerging, right? It becomes this sort of negative loop, um, not always in the near term, though sometimes in the near term, but medium to long term, when people are in, in on poverty wages, where there are children working in your supply chains or even around facilities uh, where there are communities being displaced from from lands and livelihoods um, these tend to within a time frame rebound on business negatively whether legally or reputationally or operationally um, so again it's a really valuable focus point within this broad social um, array of issues but can I sort of challenge you a bit on that yeah. That sounds a bit, and I may have misunderstood you, but it sounds a bit like all social issues are human rights issues. And I'm thinking, for example, about poverty and income. There are clearly levels of income that if companies are responsible for paying them, don't enable people to feed themselves or to have a house um, or a home or to or to be able to, to not have their children working. And that's pretty clearly in the human rights arena. And then you go a bit up the income scale and they can do those things, but there's still a huge amount of inequality and it's holding back their human development in the terms that, that you put. Is one a social issue, one a human rights issue? Where does the dividing line come or does it matter? It, it's not a dividing line is my point, right? You, mm. you think about I income and wealth. Those, that is a sort of a category of social well-being. And within that category, you have this, point which is the living wage or a living income which is the human rights tipping point if you're below that you've got a particularly acute problem your children may have to go out to work in order to feed the family you're in a human rights domain but the category is income and wealth and as you say you can then rise above that line and onwards and upwards and more opportunity and development and access to opportunity that that, that comes above that but it's it's that's why i say it's it's a threshold it's it's a threshold within every aspect of social that we can think about. Am I making more sense as I say it that way? Uh, you, are <laughs> you make a lot of sense as usual. Uh, but I'm just thinking about that company that wants to do better, wants to not just respect human rights, but mm -hmm. wants to be even more socially just. What, what would it say in terms of what it pays its workers or what it ensures workers are, are paid in its value chain? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Moving above that living income, moving above that uh, living wage level and being able, you know, perhaps to articulate what that enables employees and others to do. That there's nothing here that is to the detriment or, or that reduces the, the, the positivity. I think that the flip side, though, Richard, is that what we've seen historically is rather a company reporting on its net wage packet and saying, look, we produce all these wages that go to people and therefore it's all benefits. And that masks, that big net number masks the fact that a percentage of people are actually below the living wage. Yeah. And that's the problem that we need to shine the spotlight on, not lose it in this big positive of we pay people wages, therefore we make this big contribution. Uh, by all means, tell us about the people above a living wage and what that leads to. But please don't do it in a way that masks 
the problem set. Just as one statistic, I mean, I think it's just capital here in the US that did some research that estimated that out of the one, the Russell 1000 largest um, companies um, by market cap, uh, 50% of their workers were below a living wage. I mean, that's an extraordinary statistic in the United States of America, right? That, that most large multinational companies, certainly the ones we've talked with, when they actually go and look, they have people in their workforce below a living wage. This isn't a sort of an out there, oh, those in our supply chain or downstream in our value chain issue. This is an issue for all companies. And so, yeah, um, absolutely. There are great things that happen when you pay larger wages to people and you can reflect on how that improves well-being on many way, in many ways. But what we're really saying here is not in a way that masks the people who are paid by you directly or indirectly at levels where they can't feed their kids. And people say, uh, the critics say, oh, these social issues are far too fuzzy. How do we, how could, how do we know and what can we do? And we can't really measure it. But the great um, uh, benefit of the concept of a living wage is that it's pretty well defined now. It's pretty well defined country by country in the world. So if companies want to pay a living wage, they can find out what it is and they can apply it. And there's the, that sort of fuzziness or grey area that, that's definitely removed. I'm going to yeah. change the subject again because you've got such a wealth of experience, Caroline. Yeah, one of the strings to your bow is the senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, and you presented a paper there describing business and human rights, sustainability, inequality, stakeholder capitalism, ESG, and human and social capital as different narratives. They're all different narratives for what we're talking about, but they involve different communities of practice, as you put it. Uh, communities of practice, including the law, science, politics, economics, and our old friends, accountancy. And you very interestingly discuss both how human business and human rights relates to those other narratives, but how those narratives can be mutually reinforcing. And I think a lot of people who are listeners come from one of those different communities of, in, of practice and will themselves be asking that question, how you interlink with the others and th those different lenses, what would you say to them? Um, I would say fundamentally that the, the task here is, is, is a bridge building one, right? As you say, each of those has grown organically in its own way, the accounting field evolving into thinking about capitals, the investment arena talking about ESG and trying to get a handle on what is in the S per our conversation just, just now, um, the inequality conversation being very much in the political domain um, and engaging sort of public policy issues as well. So they've got long roots, each of these conversations. But if we can't connect the narratives up, if we can't see how our terminologies <laughs> relate to each other, then we've got sort of five parallel and almost competing sources of attention, right? We, we can't afford to do that when we want to change the world. We can't be competing for attention. What we need to see is, gosh, when you talk about human capital, you're talking about workers' human rights. And, and you know, and that is fundamental as we think about inequality and one of the critical drivers of inequality of income and wealth. Um, and that's all going to get worse unless we connect that up with the just transition so that workers aren't left behind. So all of these things have a through line between them. And it's not about abandoning one or other or rising, raising one up above another. It's about saying, gosh, we're, we're just using different terms to say, in many regards, the same things. 
have the same objectives, the same purpose at the end. So rather than speaking in parallel and competing for attention, how can we build the bridges and see these as different tools in the toolbox that we we move it forward together? And I think in the business and human rights field, you know, as I was writing that, it was like, well, what's the what's the added value? What's the contribution of this field? And I think it is that we have international standards, right? Often in other fields, you know, in accountancy or elsewhere, be discussion, well, you know, what should we reasonably expect of business? Well, what can we actually say business needs to do? Well, we've got that answer. That's what in the business and human rights space we can bring. We can set a little bit of a of a floor there for anybody's conversation. They don't have to reinvent that, that wheel. So it's bringing these tools in the toolbox together so we can go further, um, faster. And I think, Richard, just on that, you know, you raised the ISSB and our critique of that distinction between human capital and human rights, because, you know, the ISSB has such powerful potential. It, it, it you know, it can really be a a mover, notwithstanding its focus on financial materiality, maybe because of a focus on financial materiality in some ways. But it, it wants to set this global baseline. And we can't set a global baseline for standards, social standards, on the shaky idea that human capital and human rights are two different things, right? That's not going to get where the ISSB wants to go and has the power to go. And that's why we were saying don't don't build on that proposition because that misses everything that is actually common to the two. And, and if we draw back the lens and look at social, then we can start to see that these are lenses on social issues, uh, not distinct categories. Mm. And I think just in terms of narratives not competing, it's a very powerful argument. And I think on business and human rights, you and I and many people we know have been championing business and human rights and the NGPs now for a decade and more. And it, it, human rights often isn't well understood. And human rights law, I teach teach business and human rights. Um, you know, it's it's an eye opener to the to the business people that you that you meet. And I suppose my plea to to people listening is whether it's business and human rights or any of those other narratives, talk to some people in, in one of the different communities of practice, look for those linkages, don't see it as a threat, don't see it as too big and too confusing. Um, and it actually enriches what, what we all do. I feel that strongly. I loved your paper, by the way, and I, I recommend it to, to anyone who wants to to read and think about that that um, a bit more. Now, now, Shift does brilliant things, and I do congratulate you for everything you're doing. Also, you're your uh, your partner Rachel Davis, who we've already had on on frankly speaking, and please come back many times. But one of the things that you've taught me and I've learned from watching your work is around unsustainable business models for companies. That we've got all these wonderful policies and aims and targets in terms of respect for human rights, but ultimately, the core of the business, the model by which it is operating is just unsustainable whether it's the the procurement or um uh um the the cost cutting measures and so on you can explain it better than me and if and we got a lot of business people listening if you accept the argument that you've got to have a sustainable business model it's not just about individual actions of the company how do you go about questioning that? How would you go about changing a business model? These are big questions, and you work with companies on this. What do you say to them? Well, I think 
First of all, it's so important to understand where this does tie back to the business model. And, and we don't talk about sort of entire business models, right? What we talk about is features of business models. And the, the, the resource that we develop, these 24 red flags, business model red flags, they're each a feature of business models. So you can take something like um, the, the holding or the commoditization of data, right? There are many different sectors these days that are getting into some aspect of that, right? They either hold large quantities of data on people or, or, or they're looking at uh, commercializing that in some regard. Um, so we, we get out of this sort of, I'm in this sector, therefore these are, these are the issues I need to look at. Um, but what's really important here is that we also get away from this idea that we'll have a social compliance team and when issues arise, we'll ask them to go and find what the solution is to that. Is it that we need to engage more with the locally affected communities or is it that we need to run more social audits in factories and have more corrective action plans, right? Is it Once you understand that in some instances these things are part of your business model, then you understand that that's not a solution. That is simply telling people to go and play whack-a-mole because they can put a sticking plaster on it today, it will pop up again tomorrow. They can whack it down tomorrow, it'll pop up again the next week because the business is designed in ways that make that happen. So you've got to then say, okay, so this is now a discussion for the C-suite, for the board, because how are we going to deal with that fact? What is it we're going to do in the ways that we do and don't treat data? The things we are prepared to do with people's data and we're not prepared to do with people's data. The kinds of employment or non-employment relationship, rather, that we are prepared to rely upon in order to maximize revenues and we're not prepared to rely upon to maximize revenues. And those are strategic conversations that need to be had. There are trade-offs. There's absolutely no question. Many of these are driven by that maximization of near-term profits. I would suggest in many instances to the detriment of longer-term profits and opportunity. But that's the level where the conversation needs to sit and needs to happen. It's, it's just a different place and way of seeing what the problem is and when you can understand it in those terms it's different people having the conversation i'm going to change the subject again because you've got such knowledge but you were a diplomat as you say and part of the time you're at the un you actually work with the un security council which is must have been fascinating <laughs> um we live in such grim times you know as this is being broadcast terrible conflict is happening in the world both in the Middle East and in Ukraine and elsewhere. And uh, we all know that around the whole world, in so many countries, there's a shrinking civic space so that human rights and human rights defenders are finding it more and more difficult uh, for getting business, that human rights is under threat so in so many places. And so for people in business, it, they can be forgiven for thinking this is almost overwhelming that there are such big forces at play that any efforts that we might make to make a difference just won't be enough. And it might seem quite demoralizing. So you've seen these big geopolitical issues in a, from, in a governmental role, and you're now working with top companies around the, the world. What would you say to those who say that it's, just so difficult to make a difference given this huge sweep of forces that are operating all around us. 
Um, look, I don't know if the answer is any different for businesses than it is for organizations. And frankly, you know, for those of us who can feel even more overwhelmed as individuals by all that's happening, it, it's it, change is made up of little things. Overwhelmingly, change happens through lots of little actions and messages and ways of being and doing in the world. Uh, and so looking at the meta problems and saying, what's our meta answer? How do we have some macro level uh, input? Um, I don't want to say don't don't do that. There are some big, important conversations happening, G20, G7, many other places where business has a voice. Um, but honestly, the day-to-day -day, um, is what moves things over time and changes mindsets about things as well. Um, so I would double down on how do we want to present in the world? How do we want to show that we're thinking about inequality and what our role is in addressing inequality, right? This big report out, I've been part of this business commission to tackle inequality, which says absolutely frankly, yes, business has contributed many positive things, but we have also been a player in creating today's levels of inequality and we have to be a player in tackling it. And that that, that can be a macro level proposition. How do we want to rethink capitalism, right? Back to what we were talking about earlier. And it can be a micro level issue. Are we putting people onto insecure contracts? Are we paying people below a living wage? Are we uh, treating people from different uh, ethnic, gender, other backgrounds differently in our organization and so forth? And those, those quote unquote small pieces, I think are just as change making as the big flashy messages on international stages. Uh, I, I absolutely agree. And if we think of it in terms of space, there's always some space there yeah. and you operate within the space that you've got, but then do so. And I, I have to say, I so admire those companies that are working in countries where there is repression or abuse of human rights. And they, they very practically defend human rights defenders. They have public relationships yes. with them and they're more protected because of it. They've sometimes, if someone is persecuted, I've, I've seen companies help get sanctuary for, for, for political refugees. Absolutely. And so those and, companies, brilliant what they do. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we did some work looking at the, the role of financial institutions with regard to human rights defenders as well, right? I mean, financial institutions have these portfolios of companies that they're lending to or investing in, and it can be hard to see, well, how do, how do we make a, a, a difference? But the role that financial institutions can play in preserving that space, because one of the best defenses is having that voice, having that accountability that that brings so that um, investments, wherever they are, and lending wherever wherever it's happening, has that, um, that, that rebound from society, that accountability mechanism. So, you know, it can feel very, very remote when you're sitting in a bank or you know, as an investment manager, but but seeing what your role is in supporting civic space for human rights defenders i mean it's a critical due diligence tool to be part of that it's probably my final question caroline but you talked there about change and the importance of us being i suppose change agents i definitely feel i am one you definitely are one frank bold did this podcast with change agents and for all of those grim difficult forces and obstacles that we face in the world i think we've got to stay hopeful and i think you think that too what what makes you hopeful 
in doing this work? When I think back to <clears throat> 2004, when business and human rights was that first coming onto the table in the in the United Nations, the conversation was one of, but business doesn't, it's got, it's got nothing to do with human rights. That's just about governments. It's the job of government. What, what are you even talking about business for? Governments need to protect human rights and do their thing. And then businesses should get on with business. Um, it was a, a, a conversation of the term responsibility should not be applied to business, right? We're light years from that today. It, that's a ludicrous statement in today's world. Um, beyond that, the few companies that were the progressive voices back there are now amidst thousands and tens of thousands of companies where some part of this conversation has entered their consciousness and their work. There are companies I have to go and Google and look up that come across our horizon. I'm like, what do they do? They're B2B. They're, I mean, they're no profile in the way that the original companies had, right, that exposed them to reputational harm. Companies well, well beyond that are today part of this conversation for a variety of reasons. Um, that expansion of participation in the conversation is enormous. And as participation expands, so, you know, you revisit or, or, or deepen the conversation about the whys, the wherefores, and what it means in practice. And we can see the setbacks for sure, or, or we, you know, the usual two steps forward, one step back. But, but when you pull the lens back, Richard, and you look back the last, you know, what, almost 20 years now since this issue entered that UN chamber it, it's unrecognizable the difference in the conversation and the difference in the assumption sets about the place of business when it comes to human rights well i believe you and everyone involved in that made history i have to say uh, i congratulate you caroline for everything that shift is doing to take that forward and i we have sadly run out of time but i'd like to thank you very very warmly for sharing your views and sharing your experience in this podcast. Richard, it's been a pleasure. And I just end by saying what you said earlier on, we're all part of a community, right? It, this is a huge amount of organisations uh, making the difference, public and private sector, civil society and other. Um, we're pleased and proud to be part of that community. You've been listening to Frankly Speaking, the Frank Bold podcast on responsible business. We'd like to invite all our audience to send us your feedback. Please email us at franklyspeaking at frankbold.org and to please also share this conversation. Watch out for our next episode and find out more about Frank Bold's Responsible Companies section on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Thank you again so much to Caroline Reese and to all of you for listening. Do join us next time and goodbye. <music>